Section 18 of Unvarnished Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unvarnished Tales by William McKay. Section 18. John Philip, Master Carpenter. About ten years ago, Mr. Landor was the lessee and manager of the Lugubrium Theatre, and John Philip was his master carpenter. In those days, the staple of the Lugubrium entertainment was melodrama, preceded by farce. Mr. Landor found Philip, who was about thirty-five years of age, exceedingly useful. He was quick intelligent and ingenious he had been brought up to the stage carpentering business from his earliest days and had omitted to soak his facilities in gin as is too often the practice with gentlemen of his profession philip's powers of invention were indeed notorious and many famous contrivances without which certain celebrated sensational scenes must have miserably failed could be traced to his suggestions he was withal a modest cheery little fellow most beloved by his associates and greatly respected by his employer who regarded him as one of his most valuable allies john philip lived in a part of old camberwell that had not been disturbed by the invasion of the speculative builder he rented a substantially built little cottage of five rooms with quite a large garden in the back philip's gardening was it must be admitted of a somewhat theatrical kind he had erected a flagstaff painted in stripes on the top of which was a weathercock of his own contrivance an indicator which to the very last he believed told him what way the wind blew at the end of the garden was a formidable grotto the effect of which was somewhat marred by the introduction of pieces of colored glass on the sidewalk were placed two wooden pedestals also painted in various bright colors upon these stood statuettes of his favorite great men upon one was william shakespeare copied from the famous work once erected in garrick's villa and now standing in the british museum and upon the other was Mr. Dion Busico, appealing to the dog Tatters, an animal which is often alluded to in the Chauron, but never appears in that interesting production. John Phillips' widowed mother lived with him in artisan cottages and kept house for him. She was a brisk, wholesome-looking old lady and was very proud of her son, as indeed she had a right to be, and would grow garrulous about his merits, his personal beauty, and his infantile maladies at the mere mention of his name. John was very much attached to the old lady, devoting his Sunday afternoons to her entertainment what happy days those were when she sat in an arbor in the greyhound at dulwich drinking tea while john sipped his ale and smoked his pipe what royal times too when the funds permitted a trip to gravesend and when shrimps and the most marvelous watercresses formed an addition to the feast and what words can describe that period of delirious excitement when a buoyant exchequer and the closing of the lugubrium for repairs permitted that memorable week at margate alas such happiness was to be short-lived and the beginning of the sorrow of mrs philip was to be mysteriously bound up with the success in this country of opera bouffe mr landor was an astute man 
and had no exalted notion of his functions as a manager, he laughed at those who prated about high art and the rest of it, and spoke of himself as a businessman whose object in life was to make money by supplying a certain commodity for which there existed a public demand. Now, the public demand for melodrama and farce became very slack. Heavy villains and sensational sets became a drug in the market, and Mr. Landor, having duly weighed the pros and cons of the matter, determined to alter the character of his theater and make opera bouff his leading suit. Old supporters of the lugubrium growled, but the public came. The dissemination of paper was stopped, the free list was entirely suspended, and the lugubrium was doing a roaring trade. Philip still held his position as head carpenter with labors necessarily lightened, but with salary undiminished. For the successful illustration of burlesque, one of the most essential elements is a chorus of shapely young women who have no objection to as liberal a display of their personal charms as a manager may deem advisable. And among the chorus ladies engaged to Mr. Landor was Miss Carrie Adair. This fascinating damsel was the daughter of a lodging housekeeper in Islington named O'Flattery, and in assisting her mother, whose education had been somewhat neglected, to cook the accounts of the young city gentlemen who lodged with them, acquired those habits of caution and economy which have characterized her throughout her career. At the age of 18, she left her mother's care and was employed by a court dressmaker in Bond Street in the capacity of a live model to display to their best advantage the goods of her employer. While acting in this useful, if humble, capacity, she was seen by Mr. Mornington Cresswell, who had come to inspect a court dress ordered by Lady Cresswell. Sir Mornington is a well-known philanthropist and took an immediate interest in the young woman, urging her to take suitable apartments in the region abutting on Regent's Park and finally obtaining for her an engagement at the Lugubrium. Sir Mornington, being one of those reserved and unassuming Christians who do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, kept the latest instance of his kindly and discriminating philanthropy a secret from his wife. Carrie Adair was a great success in her new vocation. She was tall, of liberal contour, had big, expressionless eyes, and masses of magnificent brown hair. It was her mission in life to be a deuced fine woman. The callow connoisseurs of the stalls proclaimed her to be a deuced fine woman. And so her reputation was made, although as far as histrionic capability is concerned, she was absolutely devoid of it. She was, withal, an excessively discreet young person, and was never known to indulge in the unseemly jests which, in the dressing-rooms, formed the current coin of conversation, and, indeed, had been known on many occasions to rebuke her companions when a double entendre offended her keen susceptibilities. It was this trait in her character which won the sympathies of John Philip, he was sensible, no doubt, of her merely physical attributes, but he regarded her as an innocent and artless girl, thrown into the society of those who were by no means particular. 
he longed to shield her from the evil which is in the world, and as a preliminary to this missionary enterprise, he fell hopelessly in love with her. He had given himself body and soul to the thrall of a woman who had no more capacity for an honest affection than the table upon which I am writing. And she, what did she do? She led him on. She permitted him to hold her heavy sealskin as she enveloped herself in it. She permitted him to kiss the diamonds that covered her fingers. And then, in the very dressing room where she would not permit the use of an indelicate expression, she mimicked the comic agony of her lover for the edification of the lotties and the totties, who shrieked with laughter at her irresistible sallies. For Carrie was not without a certain flow of vulgar humor, which she had acquired probably while waiting on her young city gentleman in the Islingtonian lodging house. On the evening when poor John Philip brought himself to ask the awful question, she was particularly amusing. She showed how he blushed and stammered as he described his little place in Camberwell, how he spoke of his mother's devotion and the happy effects of living on a gravel soil. Then she narrated with some spirit how she squeezed his hand and begged for time to consider the proposal. Carrie, being the possessor of some means, was in the habit of treating her friends of the dressing room, so her jokes all took immensely, and the lotties and totties agreed that poor John Philip was an old stupid. About a fortnight after John Philip's proposal, Landor was coming down the steps of Evans Hotel in Covent Garden at twelve o'clock one night. He was passed on the steps by Miss Adair, enveloped in a white satin opera cloak and apparently in full evening dress. She was on the arm of a young gentleman with a little yellow mustache, an avant courier of that crutch and toothpick brigade which has since become famous. The manager saw her enter a brougham which was waiting in front. She was followed by the young gentleman and was driven rapidly off. The vehicle was followed on foot by a man with pale face and livid lips and without any hat on. In the face of that pursuing figure, Mr. Landor recognized John Philip, the master carpenter. And being a man of the world, he shrugged his shoulders, lit another cigarette, and went on to the Garrick Club, of which institution he is one of the most agreeable ornaments. John Philip never again entered the stage door of the lugubrium. He threw up his situation, alleging illness as an excuse. He wanted change of air. Landor regretted his determination and looked out for somebody to take his place. Three months after he received a letter from his old employee asking him, for God's sake, to come and see him. Landor went. Artisan Cottage had evidently been somewhat neglected. The creepers were trailing about in slovenly branches, and the little garden path was covered with grass. Mrs. Philip looked worn and weary, and accompanied with sobs the answers which she gave the manager. She led the way into her son's bedroom. He was a shadow of his former self, but a smile overspread his countenance as he recognized his old master. He stretched his poor transparent hand across the counterpane and, grasping the manager's hand, said feebly, "'It is kind of you, sir.' Then he motioned his mother to leave the room. 
"'I'm breaking up fast, sir,' he said. "'But afore I go, I wish to give you something as—as as a keepsake. "'You've been a good friend to me, sir, but I'm afraid I seemed ungrateful.' "'The manager answered him that he had always valued and respected him. "'Then John put his hand under the pillow and drew out a ring with a small diamond set in it. "'This he handed to Landor.' I bought it for her, he stuttered. I wanted to show her that a working man could buy jewels as well as the swells. I pinched myself to get it, and the very night I had it in my pocket to give her, I followed her home to, to, I can't say it, sir, it, it chokes me. Landor took the ring. The master carpenter fell back on his pillow. An expression of satisfied calm was upon his face. The great change was coming. Landor summoned his mother. Hearing her voice, John Philip opened his eyes and stared round the room. Then he raised himself and, with a last dying effort, shrieked, "'It's the diamonds as does it! Damn em! He fell back, and Landor closed his eyes and drew the sheet over his face. End of Section 18